So we are continuing our class called Our Worshiping World. We have looked at Judaism, Islam, Jehovah's Witness. Uh, last week we talked about atheism and the problem of evil. Uh, and there's a number of reasons why I'm wanting to walk us through the material that we are doing, and we have several more weeks of this class. Um, I hope that this will give us a deeper affection for the superiority of the Christian faith, that um, it'll help us give a better articulation of the distinctives of our faith. Um, but also another reason of many uh, why I think it's helpful to, to look at these different cults and religions is that it would hopefully help us build bridges with uh, people uh, that we may live near, uh, people that we interact with and rub elbows with in our daily lives, maybe in our extended family um, or immediate family or um, neighborhoods where we live, work, and play, um, just to help us in how to engage people of different backgrounds and build our cultural intelligence. And so today I wanted to focus more on that side of things, um, just that how to, how to take all of this uh, information we're, we're learning and really translate it into um, helpful conversations with those of different viewpoints, of different worldviews. Uh, so this is sort of, today's class is kind of an intermission, if you will, um, in the midst of this Our Worshiping World. Um, a little more on the practical side of things. So I'm going to actually show um, a movie of a guy named Gregory Kukul. Um, and he wrote a book a couple years ago called Tactics. Who's heard of his book, Tactics. Who's heard of it? So there's a decent amount of people who've heard of it. Um, so Gregory Kukul is uh, a very gifted um, evangelist and apologist of the faith. He has a uh, podcast radio show called Stand to Reason that has some really good stuff in it. Um, and there's really two reasons that I want to show this this morning. One is um, kind of, as he'll talk about in the lesson, you know, he, he want, his book is trying to be sort of a bridge from all the information maybe that you need to know, the knowledge you need to, to engage those of a different um, worldview, to bridge from all that knowledge to the wisdom of how to engage with them in conversation, how to have meaningful, productive, and loving conversations about Jesus with people. Um, and so that's kind of the main reason I want to show this video. Um, it's the, the other reason is to kind of be a teaser. Um, you know, this is the first class in, I think, an eight-class series he does, kind of going through the ideas of his book, and um, my hope would be that um, some of what he says would um, excite us about the material in his book, and, and, and my hope is to, down the road, uh, one way or another, um, offer a class or a book study on his book, Tactics, um, as I think it really... Uh, gives a lot of helpful things for um, believers. So without further ado, I'm going to let give hand the mic over to Gregory Kukul, and then we'll talk about it a little bit after we watch this.
And I want to warn you about a danger uh, in using a tactical approach, okay? The second thing that I want to do is I want to suggest a significant change in the way you approach uh, what we usually call evangelism, okay? A different way of looking at it. The third thing I want to do is I want to introduce you to the first and the most powerful apologetics tactic, the one that really is the very core of our game plan. And what I'd like to accomplish in the process is not to just give you more information. I want to make a contribution in your life to help produce a certain type of person. Now, I call that an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador for Christ is somebody who has three essential skills. First of all, they know some things. Um, every ambassador has to have a basic knowledge of the thing that the sovereign wants to communicate through that ambassador, okay? So they need knowledge, an accurately informed mind, okay? But it's not just a, enough to have the knowledge. They have to have a means of communicating that knowledge that is effective. So I call that wisdom, an artful method. But if you have the knowledge and you have the method, but it turns out you're a drunk or a womanizer or just plain rude, uh, you can see now how a person's character is going to undermine the message. So the third issue is character. You have to have an attractive manner. This course focus, focuses in principally on the second element of being a good ambassador, the tactical skill of engaging people in conversation. So let me pause for a moment and talk about the difference between tactics and strategy. You hear these terms being used in military circumstances and conversations and the like. Um, there is a difference between the two of them, and especially as we engage other people with the claims of Christ, we want to think of these two different things. A strategy kind of involves the big picture. And the way I look at that with regards to our circumstances, Christians, is the big picture involves all of the information that we have to make our case. Whether we are defending against a challenge to Christianity, we call that sometimes defensive apologetics or negative apologetics, if you will, or whether we're making a positive case for Christianity, and some call that positive apologetics, um, in either case, we have the goods. We have the best content, the best information, we have the best worldview, the one that makes the best sense of reality. And so we have the goods. That's the big picture. But how do we get the goods into play in a conversation with people? And this is what I was talking about a few moments ago when I talked about the bridge. Uh, this is where tactics come in, because tactics, simply put, are about how we take those resources that we have at our disposal and we put them into play to maneuver in conversations. Now, I got to offer a warning here because there is a downside here. These tactics are very, very powerful. That means that you can use these tactics if you have ill will to make people look foolish and stupid and that kind of thing, and this isn't the purpose. Uh, the tactics are not tricks, they are not slick ruses, they are not clever ploys to destroy non-Christians or force them to support, submit uh, to your own point of view. They are not attempts to belittle or humiliate or to gain notches in our spiritual belts. This is not what we're about. This is not our spirit here, okay? Instead, what I am teaching you are tactical maneuvers and conversations that will actually help you to manage the conversation not to manipulate people. It'll help control the circumstances that you're in, not coerce people. We're not forcing our views. We're, we're offering arguments. We're seeking to persuade people, okay? We want to finesse them, not fight with them, all right?
We want to use our tactics to maneuver and navigate through the minefields that we invariably are going to encounter when we're talking with other people about our convictions. Basically, the point of the tactical approach is to put you in the driver's seat. Okay, we'll revisit that notion a number of times, but I want to teach you a technique that will allow you to stay in the driver's seat yourself. So now we know what tactics are and what they're not. And I want to talk next about an insight that has completely changed my approach to conversation with other people. A number of years ago, after having, you know, long seasons of frustrating engagements with others, it became clear to me that I was using the wrong approach. And the insight that, that helped me out here was simply this. Before there can be any harvest, there's always got to be a season of, let's just call it gardening, okay? And this is so important, I want to repeat it. Before there can be any harvest, there always has to be a season of gardening. And you think about it, virtually uh, no one anymore goes from zero to 60 overnight. They don't get introduced to the gospel and then become a Christian right away. That almost never happens, especially in our communities right now. Those kinds of important decisions take lots of time. And I want you to think about what Jesus said in John chapter 4. This is the woman at the well, and it's a very popular passage, and it's a great conversation Jesus has. But sometimes we miss what he said afterwards. And in fact, it was about a year and a half I was reading this passage, and all of a sudden it jumped out to me. Uh, this other part and how well it fit into what I'm talking about here. Jesus had talked to the woman at the well. She went off to Sychar to tell everybody what this man had told her, bring them to see him. The disciples came. They were out getting food. Uh, Jesus says to them, you are about to reap where you did not sow. In other words, there are other people who did the heavy lifting. You're going to get the easy pickings. He said, uh, and in fact, he said, you say there are six months or four months and then comes the harvest. He said, look, at, uh, 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 the field is ripe for harvest. And he's probably indicating that particular field. I don't think he meant that every field is always ripe for harvest, but that field was. And he's probably referring to the white robes coming across the field right then being led by the woman at the well. And then he says this, so that the one who reaps and the one who sows can rejoice together. Do you see that? There are, there are two different kinds of workers. There are, there are sowers and there are reapers. There are, there are two different seasons. There are sowing, gardening, if you will, and reaping. But there's one team. And frankly, when I look back at my life, I realize that I've really been a gardener most of my life, whether it was with radio or TV interviews or lectures or, or uh, what I do in, in, in my public presentations, I'm gardening. I'm not harvesting. That's not my skill. And some of you are frustrated because you realize, boy, harvesting is what it's all about. That's what you think. That's the model of evangelism that we've received. But we're in a period of our time now where um, people need a lot more time during the gardening phase before they're ripe and ready to harvest. And when they're ready, of course, the harvest is easy because you bump up against the fruit and it drops into the basket. That's simple. The hard work is in the gardening. And since we probably need more gardeners than we need more harvesters, chances are pretty good that you are not a harvester, you're a gardener. And you've been fr frustrated because you're not a good 
uh, harvester, you're not good at closing the deal, it makes you nervous, and I understand that. And so you sit on the bench, and you're not involved, you didn't realize that maybe you're just a gardener, and that's the role that you play. Harvesting is easy when the fruit is ripe. It's part of our job, as is part of our team, to do the gardening. Okay, so I'm a gardener, I'm, an, I'm not a harvester. I suspect most of you are as well. And as such, understanding that there's always a season of gardening that's necessary before the harvest, I have modified my own goal. My goal when I go out is not to try to win that person to Christ. It may not even be to get to the gospel, because sometimes there's all kinds of stuff that have to be dealt with before people will take the gospel seriously. I have a different goal. And I encourage you to adopt the same goal. Now, what is that goal? So, whenever I speak to a non-Christian audience, I have a, a different goal in mind. And I let them know this goal right up front. I, I say to them, I'm here tonight because my life has been deeply changed by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And, and 40 years ago or so, when I was a student at UCLA, I began to think about the claims that Jesus made about himself about the nature of the world, and the, the claims that he made on my own life. And I began to ask a lot of questions, and I even pushed back quite a bit too, but finally I came to the conclusion that Jesus got it right. This is what I tell him. And so I began to follow him. Now I say, I'm not here today to convert you. That's not my goal. I just want to put a stone in your shoe. I just want to annoy you in a good way. And they all start laughing when I say this because they expect the Christian to annoy them. So I say, okay, I'm your guy, but you're going to thank me for it. I just want you walking out of the auditorium tonight, kind of something with something I said bothering you, sticking at you. I want you to see that Christianity is worth thinking about. And if I can put that stone in their shoe in the lecture that follows, then I, I, I'm happy. I'm going to do a little gardening because I know that we got a whole team of people and a lot of them are gardeners. And I'm going to do a little, you do a little, others do a little, and then when the fruit is ready to be harvested, God's going to bring a harvester, somebody who's capable, into their life to accomplish that particular goal. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about changing your goal, not to get them to sign on the dotted line, but just to do a little gardening just to put a stone in their shoe, okay? But I have something that you don't have that makes all the difference. I have a game plan. And that's the game plan that I would like to share with you during this course. And here's the promise that I'm gonna give you. In this course, I am going to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know, or how knowledgeable, or aggressive, or even obnoxious the other person may be. Okay? It's a game plan that uh, I order in a very particular way to make it simple to follow, yet is tailor-made for each individual. It follows Paul's directions in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, and here's what he says there. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. So first he says, be smart, all right? Second he says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt. Be nice. How about that? Be smart, be nice. What a concept. <laughs> Third thing he says, so that you know how to respond to each person. In other words, be tactical. 
Be smart, be nice, be tactical. Now let me give you an example of what I mean about employing this kind of tactical approach, trying to put a stone in someone's shoe, not going for the gold, but following Paul's uh, advice there in Colossians uh, chapter 4. A um, number of years ago, I was having a conversation with a young lady in a, in, a, in a film place. My wife and I, this is before our digital days, we were having some film produced, and I, I noticed that there was a, a, a pentagram hanging from her neck. Now, a pentagram is a five-pointed star. It's usually uh, an occultic symbol, but I wasn't exactly sure what it meant for her, so I asked her. I said, does that jewelry have religious significance? And she said, uh, yes, it does. The five points stand for earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. So, okay, I've heard this before. I wanted to know whether it really had religious significance for her. And I asked her that question. She said, yes, I'm a pagan. Now, I'm a, a trained professional, so I'm, you know, cool and calm. My wife never heard that before. When she heard the lady refer to herself as a pagan, my wife started to chuckle. And then she caught herself and she said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to be rude. I, I just never heard anybody admit it, admit it before. She'd only heard the word pagan used when her, her girlfriends would call their kids in, you know, get in here, you're a bunch of pagans kind of thing. But the woman wasn't offended. She said, well, no, this is an earth religion. And she began to explain how in her earth religion, um, they respect nature and life and, and, and the like. And I realized at the moment I was talking probably to a witch. And so I asked her, are you Wiccan? And she said, yes, I am. And then repeated this notion about respecting all life. Now, I know a little bit about witchcraft, and they do respect life. And that means that most of the time, they're pro-life with regards to the abortion issue. So I asked her that. Are you pro-life with regards to the abortion issue? She said, no, I'm pro-choice. I said, isn't that a little bit unusual for a witch to be pro-choice? And she said, yeah, it is. But, And then she said this. She said, I know I could never do that, referring to abortion. I could never kill a baby. Now, those were her words. Now, uh, at Stand to Reason, we have training material about abortion, and we train people to make the case that abortion kills an innocent human being, baby killing if you like, but we, we don't use that kind of language uh, because we don't want people to think we're advancing our case by using slick rhetoric, baby killer, that kind of thing. But now I'm not the one who is using that language. It's the witch who is the pro-choicer who's identifying abortion as baby killing. And one thing I hope that you get out of our sessions together is you get the conviction that you, you have to listen to what people say because they're going to give you stuff you can use. And I'm listening. So am I going to use the word abortion anymore as we continue this conversation? No, 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 no. I'm going to talk about baby killing because she's already legitimized the phrase. She said, I, I would never do that. I would never kill a baby. And then she said, why? She said, I wouldn't want anything bad to come back on me. Kind of like a karma thing. You know, what goes around comes around. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of an odd reason not to kill a baby. I'm not going to kill any. You never know what's going to happen to you when you kill babies. You know, maybe it's just a good idea not to kill babies. But I didn't take that tack. Instead, I said, well, maybe you won't kill babies, but maybe we should stop other people from killing babies. And she said, well, I think uh, people should have a choice. Now, what is the choice we're talking about here by her own admission? The choice to yeah, kill babies, right? And so I asked her that. You mean they should have a choice to kill babies? And she said, well, you know, I think all things should be taken into consideration. I said, okay, well, what would be a, a good consideration to make it okay to kill a baby? And she immediately said, incest. Now, notice what's going on here. She, she is trotting out all the pro-choice uh, slogans, right? 
But she's not thinking about it because she's already identified abortion as baby killing, so all of the pro-choice slogans are now slogans in favor of baby killing explicitly. And it's starting to sound a little weird to me, but she doesn't get it because she's just using slogans. People do this all the time. And, and uh, Christians do this all the time as well. Okay. So I wanted to get her off her stride a little bit. I'm asking questions. Finally, I, I, I said, let me see if I understand your view. If I had a two-year-old that was standing next to me right now who had been conceived by incest, on your view, then I should be allowed to kill this baby. Now, this question stopped her in her tracks. And she thought about it for a moment. And then she said, well, I have mixed feelings about that. Now, she meant it as a concession. I said, I hope so, at least mixed, you know. She said it as a concession, but uh, it got her thinking. And I noticed that the line is growing behind me, okay? So I realized that now I am interfering with her work product. And had I been of a different conviction, I might say, look at folks, I haven't gotten to the gospel yet. Sit down, um, listen up, maybe you'll learn something. But I didn't do that. I realize that I'm a gardener. I do what I can. I put a stone in her shoe, and then I move on and trust the rest to the Lord. And that's what I did there. Now, I want you to notice something about that conversation. In that conversation, I asked nine different questions. I used questions to begin the conversation, to gather information from her. I used questions to exploit what I thought was a weakness I saw in her view, her inconsistency. Um, I also tried to show the, the, uh, the, the natural consequences of her view. On her view, I should be allowed to kill this little child who had been conceived by incest. And, um, well, I like to say she was doing all the work because I wasn't doing any work. I was relaxed. But it turns out she wasn't doing any work either. She was relaxed. I was relaxed. There was no lines drawn on the sand. There's no dukes up. We weren't fighting each other. This is the power of using a tactical approach. This is exactly the way I want it. Now, at Santa Reason, we have lots of different tactics. Uh, we have tactics with names like uh, steamroller and taking the roof off and just the facts, ma'am, and suicide. But there's one tactic that really is the core of the game plan. It's the best tactic that I've ever used. It can be used with other tactics. Uh, but it's the easiest tactic imaginable to stop a, 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 a detractor in their tracks, to turn the tables, to get them thinking, and to put you in the driver's seat of the conversation. Remember, that's the place we want to be. When we talk about tactics, we want to be in the driver's seat. And the tactic has a name, and the name is Columbo. Named after the, the uh, famous Lieutenant Columbo who always showed up at the crime scene wearing a trench coat like this, all wrinkled and messed up, looked like he slept in it. Maybe he did. I don't know. I got mine at a Salvation Army. So if you ever get something that's Salvation Army, my, my wife taught me you always check the pockets because you never know what you're going to... Wait a minute. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. A cigar. See, Lieutenant Columbo, he always has a cigar. Look, at it. this is just a plastic one, so don't worry, all right? No problems here. I actually hate cigars. Whenever I find one, I always destroy it by fire. Completely. I don't want anybody to stumble. Anyway, so Lieutenant Columbo shows up. He also has got a pad of paper, right? But he can't use his pad of paper. Why not? Because he doesn't have a pen or pencil. He's got to bum a pencil off of somebody else, right? And this guy walks around the crime scene, scratching his head, mumbling to himself. He doesn't look like he can think his way out of a wet paper bag. He's stupid, but he's stupid like a fox. Because at some point, 
he's going to pause. He's got a, he's got a method to his madness. He'll pause and rub his brow like he's deep in painful thought and say something like, I don't know. There's something about this thing that bothers me. Do you mind if I ask you a question? And he asks the question, right? And then he gets the answer. You're very intelligent. And one more thing. And then he one more tings them to death, right? With question after question after question. And pretty soon people start getting upset. He says, I'm sorry. It's because I ask all these questions, but I can't help it. It's a habit. And this is a habit that you want to get into. The key to the Colombo tactic is that the Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way with carefully selected questions to advance the conversation. Let me say that again because it's so important. The key to the Colombo tactic is that you go on the offensive, but you do it in an inoffensive way with carefully selected questions that could advance the conversation. Now, why questions? Well, for one, questions are polite. You ask questions of people, you draw them out. Okay, interest is interesting, basically. Uh, so you're, you're, you're being courteous to people when you ask questions of them. Uh, another thing is questions can buy you time. If you're not sure how to proceed, you're not sure where to go, well, you've asked these questions, you can be thinking about it. Another thing is questions get you valuable information so you know which direction to go. But the biggest value of using questions is it puts you in the driver's seat. You're in the driver's seat. The focus isn't on you. It's on the other person. You're the one who's in the driver's seat. You're managing the conversation. Okay. So here's a simple guideline for you. If you hit a roadblock, ask a question. If you get into a difficult situation, ask a question. If you're not sure where to go next, ask a question. Now, Colombo is going to be your game plan. Remember I promised you I was going to give you a game plan? That's Colombo. Okay, it's going to give you the ability to maneuver in conversations. Now, there are three different uses of Colombo, and over our course, we're going to talk about each one of those things. Uh, there are three parts, in other words, of the game plan. Here's the first part of the game plan, the first application of Colombo. The first part of our game plan is to gather information. <clears throat> Remember, when Colombo comes on the crime scene, he's got to gather information to be able to solve the crime, right? And that's the same thing that you're going you're gonna to do. I want to emphasize this because I don't want you to get ahead of yourself. This is easy to do. We have a game plan that we're going to talk about. This is the first step. And what I mean by that is when you get in a circumstance where you like to have an impact for Christ, the first thing you think about doing is not getting to the gospel, not answering questions, not dealing with challenges, just gathering information. Okay? You want to know the lay of the land before you can go further. Now, a question can be a casual conversation starter. It can buy you some valuable time. But most of the time, you just need more information to know how to proceed further. I had a <clears throat> fellow that was sitting next to me in an airplane. And um, we got in a conversation. I was using the game plan and it became obvious through our conversation that I was a Christian. He said he wasn't. Well, that's good to know. He said he used to be a Christian. But he's not anymore. Do you think that's important to know? I'd say so. In fact, he used to be a preacher's kid. I said, John, how do you used to be a preacher's kid? Did your dad die or something? He said, no, my dad didn't die. He's just no longer a preacher. In fact, he's no longer a Christian. Do you think that's good information? You think there's any baggage sitting here next to me? Can you imagine if I had just started out with the simple gospel with this guy, how he, he would have responded, been there, done that, and it hurt? 
okay? But because I asked him these questions and drew him out, I'm gathering information so that a kind of a, uh, I can see a, a, a topography, spiritually speaking, and where he's at. And I realize that there are minefields there. And now I know how to respond so I can avoid those minefields. So our first step in the game plan is to gather information. And here's the, the model question that I'm going to give you. That model question is, what do you mean by that? This question, what do you mean by that, can be used in lots of different ways. Uh, it's the question I asked the witch in Wisconsin. I looked at her jewelry. I said, does that jewelry have spiritual significance? What do you mean by that is basically the question. Somebody says to you, there is no God. Well, you could start giving all kinds of arguments for the existence of God, but maybe it'd be better to say, what do you mean by that? That is, what kind of God don't you believe in? Maybe you don't believe in a God that's up in a throne somewhere with a long beard in outer space. I mean, I don't believe in that kind of God either. Uh, maybe they don't believe in a God of organized religion, but they believe in some kind of force. Maybe they believe in nothing but the natural realm. You can't go further effectively if you don't know what that is, okay? Um, once a student said, uh, everything's relative. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I would never go after the issue itself without asking some questions first, like, what do you mean by relative? I know what it means, but I don't know that he knows what it means. And what do you mean by everything? I mean, if everything means everything, isn't the statement everything is relative part of everything? Which would make that statement what? Also relative. You see the problem there. Uh, once I had a call on the, my radio show and somebody said, what's a good book on Buddhism? I said, why do you want a good book on Buddhism? See, that's a, what do you mean by that question? Uh, and he said, well, I have a friend that I work with who's a Buddhist and I want to know how to share Christ with him. I said, well, don't get the book. Uh, that's going to cost you money. You've got to read it. And it's probably not his Buddhism anyway. I suggest that you go and you grab your friend and you take him to the local watering hole and buy him a latte or something like that and ask him. I'm a Christian. I understand you're a Buddhist. I don't know anything about Buddhism. Can you tell me? And you're going to get an education on Buddhism from that individual. Notice that is also a, what do you mean by that? Tell me your Buddhism. So uh, there are lots of ways to use this question. Just one thing to keep in mind, though. Sometimes when you ask, what do you mean by that? You're going to get what I call the sounds of silence response, which means they're not going to know what to say. Now, you think that they would know what they're thinking about and what their beliefs actually entail, but it's not always the case. Sometimes they don't know, and you're giving them an opportunity to clarify their view. And they, they won't be able to advance their view based on ambiguity now because you're drawing them out with this question. It's a question you can ask all day long until the cows come home, and there's no pressure on you at all. If there's any ambiguity in the response, go ahead and ask more questions. Have them spell the issue out for, the, for you if they can. Uh, a, a great example of this is the problem of evil. It comes up all the time. Okay, and it catches Christians flat-footed. It's a great spot for your first question. People say, what about all the evil in the world? I say, what about it? Well, doesn't that create a problem for you? Well, what exactly is the problem? Do you see how what I'm doing is I'm just parrying for a moment and forcing them to be more clear about their own objection. Now, you might be thinking, well, I can ask those two questions. I don't know where to go from there, and there is more detail there. But I'll tell you, when I get into it a little bit, there's a problem with the problem of evil as an objection against Christianity. Because at some point, I'm going to ask, what do you mean by evil? And I know what they're going to say. They're going to talk about murders and rapes and tortures and that kind of stuff. And then I say, wait a minute, you just gave me examples of evil. You didn't tell me what you meant by evil. Why would you give those things as examples 
of evil and not something like kindness or mercy as examples of evil. So what my questions are meant to do at this point, just the first question, is to get to the core of what they mean by evil. And somewhere down the line they're going to say, well, it's because it, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Now, it might be occurring to you that if there is a way that they are supposed to be, there's got to be a supposer for that, which is starting to lean towards the existence of God on this issue. I don't have time to develop this anymore, but what I want you to see is even on a tough issue like the problem of evil, you can start leading with those first information-gathering questions. What do you mean by that or some variation? And it can really give you an advantage gives you more information, it gives you time to think, it gives you uh, an opportunity uh, to, 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 to reposition yourself in the argument in some way. Look at uh, what you can accomplish with this first step of the Colombo tactic, which is the first step of our game plan. First, it immediately engages the non-believer in an interactive way. That's great. Okay. Second, it shows a, a genuine interest in the other person's view. That's polite. Third, it forces that person to think more carefully about exactly what he does believe. Fourth, it, it, it gets you a free education. And finally, think of it, there's no pressure on you. You're in the driver's seat, okay? This is something very simple to do. So here's what I want you to do. This next week, I want you to focus in your conversations with other people that you hope will have a spiritual impact. I want you to focus simply on Colombo question number one. Be a student. Be a student of other people's point of view. Okay, so what did we cover in our first session together? We talked about restoring that missing piece, right? That piece that uh, goes from the content to the conversation. And it's, if without that piece, conversations are going to be difficult. How do you get started? We've talked about that particular issue. Next, we talked about the tactical approach in general, the skill of maneuvering in conversations, and how important that skill is for us to be good ambassadors for Christ with knowledge, wisdom, and character. The third thing we said is I suggested that you rethink your approach to this whole project, to think of yourself as a gardener, not a harvester. And, and to modify the goal, therefore, in your conversations. So you're not worry, worried about trying to get to the uh, end of the game, get people to sign on the dotted line. That might happen in some cases, but you'll see. Don't worry about that at first. Just simply try to what? Put a stone in their shoe. Try to get them thinking. Maybe move them forward just a little bit if you can. And finally, I introduced you to the game plan that will help you accomplish that goal. I call it the Colombo Tactic. That is, using questions to move gracefully in any conversation keeps you relaxed, keeps you protected. So the first step of the game plan, you gather information, use some form of the question, what do you mean by that? Simple. You can do this. Now, in our next session together, I'll introduce you to the second step of the game plan. See you then. If you're going to do that. Oh. All right, we've just got a couple minutes. Um, so this is the book, Tactics. Uh, I definitely highly recommend it. I haven't finished it yet. I'm pretty far through it, and it's been very helpful. Um, obviously, he gives a very basic introduction there. Um, know that in the book and then in that class, he goes much more into detail on some of the intricacies and dynamics of uh, some of his tactics that he uses. But I'd love to just take a quick minute and just hear 
from you all, some reactions, what, what light bulbs went on, what was helpful, what questions did it raise? Um, any, anyone care to share a thought or two? <laughs> Very good, actually. Very good. Very good. You're I actually don't even, I didn't even know who Columbo was, to be honest. I don't even know. Retro TV. Don't yeah, sorry. He talked about being in the driver's seat. Uh, I, I know that that was one helpful thing. I think he has so much confidence. I love his confidence in the claims of Christianity and how much confidence you can bring to, to conversations that, um, you know, you know, when you have this this sense of the just the the beauty and and the the conviction of the the truths that you have, it, it really can uh, put you in a neat place when you're talking to others. Something that I can often struggle with. So I, I love that. Any anyone else want to share? Just something that was helpful, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a very good picture because um, that's something we all have to acknowledge. It's asking questions, the building of relationships. So we need to be guarded. I'm not saying that we have to get it all together and do the hard thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a really helpful, really helpful thing. Is there another? Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I love the warning he gives at the beginning of, um, you know, he, he talks about how this, this tool can be very powerful. It can, it can often, you know, make it look like you're on the attack in any way. And, and I love how he says, no, this is not manipulation or coercion. Um, this is just simply trying to have productive and helpful conversations to really bring clarity to them um, and get to the heart of issues. So that was good. Father, uh, thank you for um, the, the gifts you've given to Gregory Kokel and just the way that you've used his ministry and, and um, his teachings to bless so many believers, but also to bring so much fruit in um, talking about Jesus with others, Lord. And so um, I pray that you would continue to equip us, Lord, as your ambassadors um, to have confidence and, and humility and clarity in, in how we can uh, continue to move towards them. Um, in your grace, you have allowed us to, be, to join you in your mission to um, bring renewal to this broken world. Um, and so would you continue to, to equip and build us up um, in that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.